Hello, this is Mimi Pickering. February 26th is the 50th anniversary of the Buffalo Creek disaster in Logan County, West Virginia. This show features the soundtracks of two documentary films I made about the flood that killed 125 people and its aftermath. We begin with the 1975 film, The Buffalo Creek Disaster, An Act of Man. Jack Wright performs a song throughout that was written by Doug Yarrow and Ruth Yarrow. At 8 a.m. February 26, 1972, a coal waste dam collapsed at the head of a holler in Logan County, West Virginia. Over 132 million gallons of water and 1 million tons of sludge barreled through the 16 coal mining communities along Buffalo Creek. 125 people were killed. 4,000 were left homeless. Shirley Markham from Lundale was one of the survivors. Well, 8.30 sharp, my house lifted up off the foundation and floated into the neighbor's house. The house on the upper side of mine come in, floated in against my house, knocked my house off of the off its foundation. They both went into my neighbor's house and the water, I could not, I could not see over the top of that when it first come in sight. The only warning we had was just a neighbor woman had uh, spotted it and just pulled in in front of our house and hollered, run, the dam has broke. And then you could hear the roar of it and it, well, you could see it. I saw my neighbor's houses leave. I watched them crumble. I seen trees, logs, cars, slate, slush, you name it, and it was in that. After we got through to safety and all and turned around, I saw five houses floating down the creek, and you could walk on from one to the other. One house particularly, I don't know who they were. I did at the time. I didn't know who they were, but I found out later they was the Ballard and Janice Luke Carter family. It was five of them in the house. We never got out. No, they're all gone. An official of the Pittston Company, owners of the dam, stated. We're investigating the damage which was caused by the flood, which we believe, of course, was an act of God. The dam was simply, quote, incapable of holding the water God poured into it. Survivor Ronnie Smith was interviewed at the Red Cross shelter at the Mann High School. Uh, my neighbors come and woke me and my wife up on Saturday morning. We'd, I'd got up to fixed fires up and watching television with the kids and power went off and they come knocking on the door and hollering and said the dam broke up well we, we'd been expecting maybe to hear this word because we'd stayed up till two o'clock that night watching the flood because the waters was high and we was afraid we might get washed out then but it still hadn't dawned on us until we looked around and we'd seen our neighbors running around like crazy trying to warn everybody the dam had broke well we got ready and I run out on the creek bank with a bunch more of the men there. There's about five of us. We'd heard that there was a woman and a baby floating down the creek on part of a house. Well, we stayed out there until 
There was no longer any need for a stand there because the creek was getting up high, and they all took off and left me there by myself there. My wife had got the kids in the car and started up and was waiting on me. And it's just as I happened to look up out of the side of my eye, I saw it coming. And I took off running for the car, and I warned the people down the creek as I went that the water was coming. They wouldn't believe me, and I told them, I said, well, look out there, you can see the house coming down the creek. But still, they didn't believe. They just a few took off. And we went on down the road then, warning more as we come along to them. And we got our kids to safety, and then we took off back to where we could see what was happening as damage was coming down the creek. We seen 18, about 14 houses destroyed as they hit the bridge, and about five cars, and there was many lives lost. But this is the most tragic thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm sorry that God let me live to see it. In Logan County, where coal is the king, where the people work hard for most everything. On Buffalo Creek, it was cloudy and gray, and the people were rising to meet a new day. The bacon was sizzling and the coffee was poured. But the dam up the holler couldn't hold any more. And the water raged down, smashed town after town. Homes dashed to pieces and whole families was drowned. How could it happen, said how could it be? That dam, it belonged to the coal company. An act of God, the bosses did cry. But God ain't that cruel, we can see through your lies. W.A. Waller, consulting engineer to the U.S. Bureau of Mines. In, in about 1960 to 1964, there were various efforts made throughout the United States and uh, including Appalachian coal area, to clean up the streams as a, an environmental improvement act. And um, the so-called coal waste dam, as personified by the Buffalo Creek Dam, was invented as a uh, tool for filtering the uh, solid waste from the coal mining and processing activities from the stream water so that the water that uh, was contaminated with the uh, coal waste would come out clean. It was a uh, field invention. Somebody pushed some waste across the stream. The water on the upstream side was black and the water on the downstream side was clear. And based on this success, Bigger and better uh, filtration dams were built, and they were successful for a number of years. And um, eventually, uh, this one was big enough to fail in a hazardous manner. Tom Bethel, research director at the United Mine Workers of America in 1975. The Interior Department investigated the disaster, 
starting really immediately afterward, within a few hours. And three separate reports were produced. One which was out of the Bureau of Mines and was uh, handled pretty much by the, the standard Bureau of Mines uh, people who are not particularly skilled in, in dam construction, but they do investigate all mine-related fatal accidents. A second was uh, produced by a man named Fred Walker, who had been a uh, head of the uh, earth dam section at the Bureau of Reclamation and was very much an expert in the kind of dam that was uh, used at, at, at Buffalo Creek, in other words, a, a loose, non-impervious kind of dam. And then there was a third investigation by the Geological Survey, also headed up by experts in this kind of dam construction. Their reports are, are lengthy, but they all find basically the same thing, which is that uh, the dam simply was not built to impound successfully large quantities of water, certainly nothing like 120 or 130 million gallons, which is what was backed up behind there on the morning of February 26th. All of the reports uh, express in, in bureaucratic terms the real shock that the investigators felt personally as they slowly became aware of just how totally inadequate the dam was and how inevitable it was that it was going to break. Pittston knew 24 hours in, in advance that the, that the water was rising ominously and steadily. The rain was continuing. There was no probability of a let up. Uh, there were no forecasts the situation was going to improve. Jack Kent, the uh, uh, head of strip mining for Pittston in that area, was up at the dam on, on an hourly or more than hourly basis. He had a measuring stick uh, uh, in the dam. He could see the water rising. He called Steve Dasovich, who was the general boss for Pittston in the, in the area, and uh, expressed his concern that it was going to go. And then, of course, as I think the rest is history, but, but uh, uh, Dasovich, for reasons really known only to himself, decided to reassure people downstream that nothing was going to happen and left the area and was on his way out of the valley when the dam did go. Survivors Kathy Bryant and Shirley Markham. We just kept climbing up the mountain and everything, and uh, I looked back, I heard someone screaming for help, and I looked back and there was the yellow house going down the water, and I could see through the window, the house wasn't torn apart, I could just, you know, but I could see through the window, people were in the house, and they were trying to get out of it, and it just broke my heart, because I knew that there, was, there wasn't anything we could do, we were trying to save our own lives. Right now, to me, after seeing it and everything, it still seems unreal. It just doesn't seem like it, it happened. The way I felt, actually felt about the dam, the confidence that I had in the, in the officials of the company, I couldn't, I just couldn't figure out why they didn't send us a warning. I couldn't. It's still a mystery to me. That's why I'm hurt. I saw a deputy sheriff go down the road at, oh, maybe 25 miles there at ease in his cruiser because he had been turned back and assured that everything was under control. He had nothing to fear either. But a few minutes after, all hell broke loose. At the time of the Buffalo Creek disaster, Pittston was uh, the fourth largest American coal company and the largest independent coal company and probably was unique in the industry in, in having cornered a very substantial part of the metallurgical coal reserves in the United States. 
it's the, the cream of the crop, so to speak. So that you could fairly say that it was a company which was in a unique financial situation and by no stretch of the imagination could use the excuse that you often hear in the coal industry about how times were tough and we would have done it better if we could have. This was a company that could have done it as well as it needed to be done. From the standpoint of safety, the, the company was typical to a considerable extent and slightly worse than average. In uh, 1971, there had been nine fatal accidents in Pittston Mines, and there had been, according to the Bureau of Mine Statistics, 743 serious disabling uh, non-fatal injuries, which meant that uh, Pittston was second in the country, both in terms of fatal frequency and non-fatal frequency, and that, that uh, is a bad safety record by any stretch of the imagination. But the company's attitude on safety was, was very typical. There had been uh, some 5,000 safety violations found by federal inspectors in 1971, and a very substantial number of fines imposed, tentatively imposed, against the company. Pittston fought every single one of them, even where no principal was involved. And at the time of the disaster, had uh, paid about $275 in fines total. Basically a kind of, of, of attitude that you just find throughout the whole industry of, of uh, obstruction and opposition to the law uh, just on the principle of opposing it. The bacon was sizzling and the coffee was poured But the dam up the holler couldn't hold any more And the water raged down, smashed town after town Homes dashed to pieces and whole families was drowned how could it happen, said, how could it be? That dam, it belonged to the coal company. An act of God, the bosses did cry. But God ain't that cruel, we can see through your lies. The Reverend Jim Somerville, Secretary of the Citizens Commission. The Citizens Commission to investigate the Buffalo Creek disaster was an independent organization of people in West Virginia called into being really by the West Virginia Black Lung Association to look very carefully and, and fully into the the Buffalo Creek flood of February 1972. The most tangible, lasting result of the Citizens Commission is, of course, the report which was published. And we wrote it on the basis of what we learned out of our own investigations in the community through public hearings which we held, as well as the investigations that we did by trying to go to the record that the public agencies themselves made as they went about the course of, of their investigations. We were suspicious of the report that takes so long to write and has so many ifs, ands, and buts that it really said nothing. And so the Citizens Commission began to say quite early, we think that this coal company, Pittston, has murdered people and we call upon the prosecuting attorney and judge in Logan County, the county where that thing occurred, to prosecute and to bring to trial this coal company. And we call upon the federal government 
to do its part. And we charge the federal government with being negligent, and we charge the state government with being neg negligent. We tried to document that, and I think what we documented will stand. The dam, as it turned out later, was in violation of at least three state laws and federal regulations drafted in connection with the 1969 Coal Mine Health and Safety Act. Uh, this is not to say that, that if the company had complied with all of these laws, it would necessarily have built a dam which was safe. None of these laws necessarily guarantee that there would have been a, a, a properly engineered dam. But the fact of the matter is that these were all laws on the books which the company felt completely free to ignore, which says something about the relationships between coal companies and state governments, and particularly about the uh, West Virginia state government and its relations with coal companies. Just this complete freedom to ignore these laws with no fear of any kind of prosecution. West Virginia Governor Arch Moore commenting on press coverage. The only real sad part is that the state of West Virginia has taken a terrible beating which far overshadowed the beating which the individuals that lost their lives took. And I consider this an even greater tragedy than the flood itself. The sad part really of the federal regulation situation is that the Bureau of Mines, when confronted with this regulation, which existed for the purpose of being enforced, uh, tried to take the narrowest possible view of what this, what this regulation was designed to do and, and to say, in effect, well, this wasn't a situation that was designed to be covered by this regulation. Therefore, it wasn't our responsibility to go in there and do anything about it. And in the Senate hearings, you had nothing but this kind of kind of um, washing of hands by re supposedly responsible officials, all of whom said, well, you know, uh, it wasn't my agency that was supposed to take care of this. It was that agency over there. And then that agency would get on and say, well, we, we weren't aware that it was our responsibility to do it. It must have been uh, somebody else's. And the, the buck was always passed. Uh, the agencies never were willing to take any kind of responsibility for having failed to do a job. And the company never took any responsibility for having failed to comply with what they were supposed to do. Almost five years before the disaster, nearly a score of state and local officials were officially warned by the Interior Department that this waste pile and 29 others in the state were unstable or could be topped by high waters. The letter from the Interior Department reported on a survey of coal refuse banks undertaken following the waste bank slide at Abervine, Wales that killed 116 school children in 1966. Reverend Jim Somerville. One of the things that the Citizens Commission found as it did its work on Buffalo Creek was that there was more to do on Buffalo Creek than merely to find out the facts of the disaster. We felt that if we were a Citizens Commission, then we could not merely be a fact-finding group, but that somehow our membership on that commission had to support the effort on that creek 
by people to do something about that disaster. We were trying to say to West Virginians that bodies of citizens need to, to bring the government to accountability. We knew that the annual stockholders meeting was coming up. We discussed this in a community meeting and we said, how would you like to go ahead and just lay out to the officials of the company and members of the board and the stockholders the kind of tragedy that's happened to you? How would you like to do this? And people wanted to do that. We then worked as the Citizens Commission to find some money to get a bus and take some 30 people, citizens of that creek, to Richmond, Virginia, to that stockholders meeting. And, uh, and I think people had a strong feeling that they could do something direct. They could at least go look somebody in the face and say to him, look, mister, uh, you killed my mother. You destroyed my house. You took away everything that I ever worked for. And look, we're hardworking coal miners, and we've suffered a hellish kind of a disaster. And we ain't asking much. But we would like for you people to understand that at least you owe us compensation for our losses. And we don't want any ifs, ands, and buts about it. We would like for this company to do one little decent thing and settle claims with people whose lives have just been run over by that company-created disaster. Nicholas T. Kamisha, president of the Pittston Company. I, I agreed to meet with this uh, delegation from Buffalo Creek. Uh, these are people that live in an area that uh, I was born and raised in. I lived there for many years, so I understand their problems very well. They are uh, <clears throat> my friends. We sat down and talked about the problems that they had, and they had one chief concern that I was not aware of, and that concern was that their uh, claims were not being processed fast enough, that their settlements weren't being made uh, as rapidly as they thought they should be. Uh, I assured them that uh, the company policy was to make restitution to everyone affected and that lived on Buffalo Creek. We uh, planned to uh, expedite the uh, settlement of claims as rapidly as possible, and we intend to do that. They, I'm sure, felt that uh, after, after our discussions that the Pittston Company and Buffalo Mining Company will do this, and we will pay the claims as rapidly as we can process it. They do understand, too, that, it, that you can't do it in an hour, that it is a large uh, number of claims, and I think they do understand that it takes some processing, <clears throat> some uh, uh, order of, uh, of going through certain procedures. Buffalo Creek community leaders. Uh, uh, we haven't had no help on uh, Buffalo Creek uh, at all. The only help we've had is from uh, the Red Cross and the Salvation Army. And we went to Richmond, Virginia to find out what uh, uh, that they were going to do about the losses on, uh, on uh, Buffalo Creek to, well, uh, to our people. They, uh, they assured us that they would make all claims reasonable and fair. 
And people that has uh, that completely lost their homes, uh, they ask uh, uh, for fifteen thousand dollars. And so their law, uh, the lawyer staker that they have for Pitts and Coal Company, cuts their claim from uh, from three to five thousand dollars and more. And he tells them if they don't want that settlement, that for them to go get them a lawyer and uh, fight it. And if they do that, it's going to cost them more than what they uh, what they would get if they would take what he offered them. We we don't like where we're at, although we are thankful for a trailer. But I mean, it's uh, it's not like we where we were accustomed to being. And we had a big two-story house and a big yard. And now we got about a two-before trailer, and <laughs> and it, it's quite a bit of difference. Commissioner guaranteed me, and he assured me, and my committee, that when we left there, to come back here and tell these people that they would be compensated and they would be fully satisfied when this thing is all over. Well, how can you satisfy people if they file a just and honest claim and then his adjusters comes along and cuts them ten and $12,000 when they've lost their life's earnings? It just doesn't work that way. Pittston President Kamisha speaking with reporters. One other question, sir. Uh, there has been, you know, at least the implication of negligence on the part of the company, but you mentioned that the people who build the dams and, and who inspected it actually had a part in it. Could you explain that? Well, I, I think I can say briefly what I said in the, the, the shareholders' meeting, and that is that uh, the people who built the dam, who supervised the, uh, the impoundment and the filtration system, are people who live in that hollow below the impoundment. Certainly, if they thought that it was an unsafe situation, they first wouldn't live there. Secondly, the supervision would not build it. You said the people on Buffalo Creek were responsible for any negligence. Doesn't the Pittston Company have some responsibility? What did I, what, what did you say I said? The, the people that built the dam and uh, constructed it, engineered it, were responsible? No, I did not it. say that. I'm sorry if you misinterpreted what I said. Who do you I feel said, is responsible? Well, I don't think that uh, that's a proper question at this time because there are a number of investigations going on, and certainly our own isn't concluded, and I know the government's investigations, and it would be uh, out of uh, context for me to comment. I'm Thank sorry, you very sir. much. Could you spell your name before you? <laughs> well, that's I'll the most difficult question you ever asked. In the first days after the flood, the company tried to stick with uh, the initial response, which uh, a vice president named Palomara had given to a reporter from the Charleston Gazette, uh, that, that it was an act of God. Basic uh, company attitude, uh, which uh, at one point I think was put almost exactly in these words, was uh, that uh, uh, God simply dumped more rain into the uh, pond behind the uh, dam than the dam could hold. And so that was how it was an act of God. And then finally, of course, the company's attitude changed as it had to. Uh, the company really acknowledged, although never in so many words, its liability for a, a non-designed dam that just was, just was allowed to grow. And of course, they really acknowledged it when they settled out of court for $13 million and some change in the suit that was uh, brought against them. But basically, the company has never really taken the attitude of feeling real guilt for this whole thing, never expressed any guilt for it, and never done anything in the way of rebuilding the community or offering you know, real assistance to people in other communities to indicate any kind of change of heart. Yeah, there's been no change.
125 people killed, 1,100 treated for injuries, 4,000 people left homeless, 502 houses and 44 mobile homes completely destroyed, 268 houses and 42 mobile homes severely damaged and condemned. 633 other homes suffered from some damage. 1,000 cars and trucks demolished. Property damage exceeded $50 million. Tom Bethel from the United Mine Workers. I don't think that there's any evidence that the company has been hurt at all financially by the disaster. First of all, the standard insurance uh, policies picked up a large part of the uh, liability in terms of the early claim settlements. Secondly, while $13 million sounds like an enormous settlement, if you look at what Pittston is producing now and what it's selling for, you, you just can't, uh, can't help but feel that the company has not been hurt. The company's producing more than 20 million tons of coal a year. It's selling that coal at prices now as high as 125 to 140 a ton to the Japanese steel industry. $13 million, uh, dollars, uh, when you factor it into that kind of coal production, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 cents to 75 cents, maybe a dollar a ton. Uh, with the coal market the way it is right now, it, it just doesn't even appear as a blip on the, on the, uh, on the Pittston uh, financial picture. You just don't even see it there. Um, the company just goes on making money. And, and the people who really wind up paying for the disaster when it all comes back, I think, are people who are, are buying uh, Japanese manufactured products. Uh, it's really ironic. You get the little old lady out in California buying a Toyota made out of Japanese steel, which is made out of Pittston's coal, in her own way is uh, making the final settlement on Buffalo Creek. But it's not coming out of Pittston's pockets. And the company is considered to be a really premium investment in the, in the whole fuels industry now by, by uh, Wall Street stock analysts. Uh, we get a lot of the reports. We see them. Uh, it's kind of sickening to read them. They never mention Buffalo Creek except in a very favorable way. Uh, they, they say that the company has uh, settled and the company has not been adversely hurt. And we think Pittston continues to be an outstanding investment, you know, that kind of thing. And that's, uh, that's how much Pittston's been hurt. How could it happen, said, how could it be? That damn it belonged to the coal company. An act of God, the bosses did cry. But God ain't that cruel, we can see through your lies. Who ordered the dozer to build that dam? And who's living high off the work of our hands? Who takes our coal but don't share in the fear? Yes, whose greed for money has cost us so dear? Yes, whose greed for money has cost us so dear? There were various estimates of what it would have cost to, to, to build a dam properly, ranging from about $50,000 to about $200,000. Whichever figure you choose, it's obviously not very much. And the question that comes up about why Pittston didn't do it um, probably is a, is a very large question in terms of why the coal industry has never done 
anything more than it has absolutely had to do in the area that it works in. You know, why, why do people strip mountains in, in, in Appalachia and not put it back, aside from the fact that you can't put it back from gravity? But, I mean, why don't they even make the effort? Why, why do people not make the effort to uh, clean up their minds until you have a Farmington disaster that causes such a storm of outrage that you get a federal law passed finally and they have to do something? Why don't they do it? Well, they don't do it because this industry has a long tradition of getting by on the cheap. You just keep on producing coal until something goes wrong, and you hope you're going to get by. And you sit up there in New York, and you look at the figures, and you forget all about the people living down there. Kamisha probably never knew that dam existed, probably never had any idea that it existed, and if told about it, probably would have put it in his basket, you know, to be dealt with at some point. And, you know, but it, it wasn't relevant. It just wasn't relevant. Survivor Shirley Markham. I didn't see God driving them slate trucks up there and wearing a hard hull cap. I did not see that at no time when I visited the dam. That's the way I feel about it. I don't believe it was an act of God. It was an act of man. That was the 1975 film, The Buffalo Creek Flood, An Act of Man. From all accounts, rebuilding the Buffalo Creek community was another disaster. I went back 10 years after the flood to report on the efforts to rebuild and resettle Buffalo Creek survivors. Gail Amberge was a young girl living about halfway up the creek at the time of the disaster. She opens Buffalo Creek Revisited. I'm not wrote anything about the flood after this. You know, I think it says it all, pretty much. I don't know if I'll write anything else about the flood or not, you know. <clears throat> it's Friday late on the summer side of this West Virginia town, wishing it was another West Virginia town, maybe on some other West Virginia riverbank. Riverbank, beautiful as autumn in your mind. Here in this $75 room, I remember things and more things. I've forgotten nothing. My thoughts are as clear as the empty vodka bottle on my windowsill. I remember a dusty afternoon lunch in the churchyard 10 years ago. Every detail as close as it can be to me. My thoughts run ragged, one right after another, like seconds and minutes that turn into hours and days. Thoughts and thoughts that turn into nightmares. The point in your life where thoughts take the place of time passing. That old license plate on the wall calls out a past best forgotten, and I've forgotten now some names of those I knew, some faces of misplaced people. Those people are lost to me, and I've forgotten a Friday night rain and a Saturday morning pain. No particular Saturday morning. I said I'd forgotten that. I can't remember the dead dogs I pulled out of the mud in houses, wishing and hoping and good God above praying it wasn't some child still warm yet stiff from the mud. I said I can't remember the watermarks on houses condemned and the watermarks on people condemned and the watermarks zigzagging the mountainsides for 10 miles down the holler. I've forgotten the story of poor Ms. Withrow buried to the neck for hours and saying a prayer thanking the good Lord she had survived, telling the sick and workers not to worry she was warm, God had taken care of her while she waited. And I've forgotten the look in Mr. Johnson's eyes on that Saturday morning the way he stared at me, laying down in that rubble like that, genitals torn completely off his naked, tormented body, 
It showed in his eyes when I shook him, asking for an answer. I swear it did. I swear, damn it, I can't forget. Not this late at night. The Reverend Paul Rhodes led a memorial service at his church in Laredo on the 10th anniversary of the disaster. pots of roses and we'd like to present a rose to each of you that is representing your families in remembrance of Mike King, Robert A. Murray, Thomas Benatter, Leonard E. Butcher, Grady Michael Wall, Frank Lee Workman Sr., Kimberly K. Bailey, Augustin Miller, Sylvia Albright, Mary B. Markham, Goldie Marie Sickles. Alicia Dempsey, Donetta Lynn Lester, Thelma Dillon, Wendell Dallas Osborne, Edith Blankenship, and Lillian Carter. Anita Owen Smith, Herbert Peters, Unidentified, Diana McCoy, Kimberly McCoy, Harold Dillon, Larry Wall, Kathy Wall. May Gerald, Henrietta Owens, Gladys Staten, Ruth Morris lived at Lundale at the time of the flood. She was living closer to Man in one of the duplexes built by the redevelopment effort when we interviewed her. Our children was raised together. They, they wasn't like neighbors. They was family. Um, I've traveled over this old hollow many a day with maybe two families in my car to the doctor. Um, next door neighbor would take my carburetor and put it on his car. I'd take his tires off and put it on mine. That's the kind of neighbors we was. We, uh, we didn't run and knock on the door and say, can I do? We went and opened the door and walked in and did do. We, we just worked together. We took, I guess you could say we took care of one another. We joined everything. We belonged to the PTA, the Scouts, the Cub Scouts, uh, all communities of fires, churches and stuff like that. And every morning to us was a sunny morning, a smile, a good morning, hi, how are you? That meant so much to us. We don't get that no more. We don't see it no more. It, it's a loss. It is. You know, a smile is worth a million dollars sometimes. And we don't get that no more. We get vacant stares. We get frowns, we get worries. Um, it'll never have another homey atmosphere. That's the only thing I can tell you, to, really, that to define it. it, it was home. Dr. June Church was director of Logan Mingo Area Mental Health. He's followed by Gail Ambergy. I was one of the few psychologists that was available during the Buffalo Creek disaster in 19... 72. Some of the uh, emotional problems and psychophysiological problems were uh, headaches, some colitis, different type of stress reactions. There was uh, an increase in uh, alcohol consumption, 
The families become more disruptive within themselves, more arguments. Uh, there was an increase in accidents, uh, people just running off the road, for instance. There was an ex extensive amount of depression, uh, guilt, and anxiety. I don't know. I, I was real confused for a long time, for years and years after the flood. I couldn't, I couldn't really zone in on what was happening. You know, I knew people was dead, dogs were dead, people, you know, was out of homes and stuff. I, I was real busy. You know, everybody pitched in, and you know, I didn't really have time to think about what was going on. Ken Heckler represented West Virginia in Congress from 1959 to 1977 and was a longtime champion for coal miners' health and safety and environmental protection. The reaction was good so far as the cleanup and rescue effort, recovering of bodies, and bulldozing some of the debris out of the way. The National Guard and the Army Corps of Engineers did a fairly good and thorough job on that. But very little was done to deal with the human problems which this terrible disaster had caused among thousands of people throughout the valley. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, sent in some trailers very quickly and there was an immediate problem about where to put these trailers. The coal companies, of course, didn't want to put on land that they hoped to be able to mine. And when HUD herded people into some 13 trailer camps, it was done in, in a, a very arbitrary manner. It broke up communities. People had been ripped up by the roots and forced into what were almost concentration camps. Next we hear Ruth Morris, Dr. Church, and Ken Heckler. I live at the Ackerville Trailer Park. They call it the Gestapo. Uh, the one at Green Valley, they called it Little Peyton Place. Uh, they never could keep track of their children. People was distrustful. They see no peace, no rest. They put strangers in them head trailers among our people that we didn't know. It was frightful. And you'd hear mothers cry and worry and wonder when they're going to get to go back on their properties. You see, that wasn't home to them. And they couldn't look into the future. They didn't have nothing to look to. Even though we had strongly suggested on the relocation to keep the natural groupings together as much as possible, but apparently uh, they were just haphazardly placed, and the the people who had lived together for years and their their fathers and forefathers had all lived closely together uh, were disbanded, broken up. They were put next to strangers. They had no one that they could really risk themselves with and to talk with, to share the common feelings, and they felt like they were alone in the world. And then, unfortunately, it'll take, in my opinion again, probably uh, two generations for them really to resolve all the anxiety that has lingered on. I 
that used to be a trailer car. But you can see them had trailers to you there. This is Lorraine to Lindale. Lindale lost everything in Laredo. Everything here is new. They ain't nothing, wasn't nothing. It's just like somebody took a magic wand and wiped it off. That this whole bottom was wiped out. This is the main road. It went just exactly right here. Did it take, like, being so wide, did it take a whole row of houses? It took three rows. There was three rows of houses in here. See these alleys through here? Yeah. There was an alley in front of every house. Now, my one of my sons lives right there. This is my property, Mimi. This is where you live. Uh-huh. That's where, uh, and I got that playground put in there after the dam broke. All this is in here new. See, this is all wiped out. See here? Yeah, my daddy's property sit right there. That was daddy's tree right there. My brother was washed off his property right there where you see that log land. Now this was a big community. See the highway going right through there? Yeah. Now let me show you. Now, Ladybug, you can just get your little rear end off. There was homes here, three rows of them. One, two, three, went to our bank. Now, this is the property I was telling you about that the highway department bought for the highway. And the people went to buy it back, and they said they couldn't sell it to them. Well, what in the name of God's going on here? Howdy. Guess you know what I'm doing, don't you? I'm checking out your property for you. Checking the property? Well, I'm, I'm telling him about it now. She's one of the ones they turned down. That's Miss Webb. Turned down for what? She wanted her property back right down there, and they wouldn't let her have it. Told her that it wasn't for sale, and they turned around and sold another man, and she had to buy below me. Now, all this property in here was full of houses. But still yet, they would not let us come back. The State Highway Department was insisting that it needed to have time to engineer and plan out the rights away for a superhighway. And I got a lot of calls from individuals who wanted to go back into the area where they had had their homes. They were told by the state highway people, you can't go there because there's no water and sewage there, and we need that land for the superhighway. The emphasis kept being placed on the priority of the highway, which to them seemed to be far more important than getting people back into their homes. Carl Bradford was director of the Governor's Office of Federal-State Relations, which oversaw redevelopment efforts. We called together all of the state and federal agencies that we felt might have some input uh, redeveloping the area and initiated a planning process, which resulted in this document, the Buffalo Valley Redevelopment Plan. 
So our initial approach was try to concentrate the redevelopment in what we're then calling three nodes, which you'll hear quite a bit about the node concept down there even yet. But essentially what uh, was done was looked for the area where the most total destruction had occurred so the land was basically available and concentrate amenities in these areas and encourage people to rebuild and resettle in that area. The reconstruction of the road was included as part of the redevelopment plan along with water and sewer systems, health services, recreation, and other components of restoring community life. Folks who'd been involved in efforts to rebuild Buffalo Creek gathered at the home of Jack and Virgie Vernatter in Robinette to talk about the experience. We hear Myrna Ambergie, Logan County journalist Beth Spence, Congressman Bob Wise, and Jack Vernatter. When you come down to the nitty-gritty of it, the people really didn't ask for anything. The Just government came the in here and telling them what they were going to do. Well, that's because of the expectations then, and then they wanted it. I don't know whether, you know, what happened, whether funding wasn't available or what, but the water and sewage system was completed in 1977 instead of September 1972. The road took a long time to complete, and during that time people were really in limbo about going back to their to their homes, to their to their lots to rebuild because they didn't know whether it was going to be taken for this or that or the other. A lot of the problems is just nobody ever made an attempt to keep them. And I don't think people wanted the world, but it's when you come in and you say there will be 750 homes, uh, uh, there will be immediate recreation, there's going to be a water and sewer system, and then it's not coming. That pile on top That's of right. an already uh, traumatic event, such as a Really, flood. I think that a whole lot of the dishonesty that went on in this creek was due to having broken promises. And uh, it turned the people's attitude. It turned their attitude, you know. They, uh, completely around it. It was really rough. People's not the same yet. No, no. and I, they'll no. never be the same. Mm-hmm. Used to be you'd go up through this these camps here, and you stop at the community. First thing you know, there's 25 or 30 around you. Everybody yeah, talking to one another. You go up through there now, and you stop your car. Ain't nobody gonna come to be car to see what you want. Well, in fact, you in fact you debate on whether to stop close to their fence or not. Well, Here's Carl Bradford from the governor's office, followed by Jack Vernatter and Beth Spence. There's no question that uh, the building of the highway, uh, many things affected a person's options in terms of returning to their initial piece of land. In fact, uh, looking at retrospect and how the resettlement occurred, there weren't that many people really returned to their original piece of land. If everything had gone, uh, you know, according to initial perceptions and optimum projections, we would have tried to create a suburban quality of life in, in nodules in Buffalo Valley. Uh, I don't think anybody really expected that to happen, but if you don't set your goals high, you, you end up much lower than you're, you're shooting for. Uh, I think what we w- were shooting f- for realistically was, you know, uh, safe, decent, sanitary living conditions in the valley where people had some choice to choose the type of dwelling they want, the lifestyle they, 
uh, could want to accommodate and uh, have some degree of protection in doing that. Uh, I don't think we got quite to there. Uh, I'll go back just a little bit further than flood. I, I, I'll go back, uh, I'll say, 15 years ago. If either one of you all would have told me that I couldn't have got anything from my state or my government would have lied to me, you'd have had me to fight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right now, brother, she's up in limbo. I say they'll all lie to you. Every one of them will give you a, a nice talk. And they'll put a picture on there that, by God, you can almost see it in the dark. <laughs> but it's not there, folks. That's true. Mm -hmm. The thing that frustrates me about Buffalo Creek is I come up here today and I see not the communities that I knew as a child, but sort of scattered homes, um, a loss of community. People face death of, of friends and relatives, but when also everything that was once familiar to them is also gone, the trauma is double. Mm -hmm. And I think Buffalo Creek stands as a symbol of how important communities are. Ruth Morris is at the head of Buffalo Creek near the site of the dam collapse. Now that was Saunders Camp right there where you see all that stockpile. Oh, it was beautiful. It was the most modernest little community you ever looked at. Oh, there's about 35 families lived in there. That was a whole complete community. One of the prettiest little places you ever seen. Little modern homes. Everybody was so happy there. The big white church sat right yonder in that dip. What happened? Piston wouldn't let them come back on it. And the people went to federal court and made them buy them some property down at Lundale. They use it now to stock. They didn't want nobody back. Coal companies didn't want none of us back. They went right on building this. They didn't offer to make them people a way to live. They had this built before they ever made provisions for them people. Hey, God, Mimi, I don't know. The governor let them buy with it. Here's where the dam broke. They keep check on it. See how they drain it now. And uh, well, they was all back to work in five days. If you'll just read your papers. Ken Heckler speaks. We hear sounds of a coal loading facility in the background. Then we have Bob Wise, Myrna Ambergy, Virgie Ambergy, Bess Spence, and Ken Heckler again. Because of the fact that uh, almost three quarters of the land in Logan County is owned by a very few coal companies, lumber companies, oil and utility uh, empires, it's very, very difficult for the average individual to find a place to live. Virtually all of the level land is being reserved by those companies that hope to, to uh, extract the mineral resources. After Buffalo Creek, you had a combination not only of the state highway department saying, hey, we want all this land and uh, many feet on either side for a highway, but you had the coal companies vetoing the use of land to get people back into their homes. 
And this is a perennial problem in an area that is dominated by a small number of industries the way Logan County is. It's a problem not only in Buffalo Creek, it's a problem throughout the county where if you want to resettle people that have been on Buffalo Creek, you can't find the land elsewhere. And there have been cases of whole communities that have been obliterated because of the need for a new coal tipper or preparation plant. You've got a railroad train 30 feet from this living room that runs out every day loaded with coal, going to Boston, Chicago, and whatnot. And then, like you say, where, is the, where are the fire trucks, where are the school buildings, where are the recreation centers? You had to raise that money but for out of the people who live here. Well, that's fine, but why didn't those corporate citizens also contribute? There's a coal company that caused this flood, it's coal companies that own this valley, it's coal companies that are going to cause another flood right. if we don't change some of those patterns. Well, they make their money and they'll move out. You See, their headquarters down, down I think it's in New York. Uh, their officials has uh, homes in Florida and California and places like that. Once they're through, they move out, you see. They leave their debris, their mess, their junk. They don't care about us anymore. So why put all that money in there? They're going to leave. How many of their wives have been here since how we live? How many of the owners, uh, well, they own stock in the coal countries, how many have been to our area and looked it over. They don't know how we live. How many of their children here. have to go to school in our schools? That's how right. many of them have to die in our hospitals That's because right. we don't have adequate health care? Not right. very many of them. And sometimes we have to break some of that pattern somehow. So I think Buffalo Creek is, is symbolic and, and represents a good deal of the problems in this state and I think in several of the Appalachian states. But there are more people than there are uh, exploiters. Therefore, there ought to be an opportunity to organize the people to insist that they be given treatment as human beings instead of mere vassals in a, a fiefdom. Poet Gail Ambergy concludes the film. From the conversations I've had with people, you know, they just tell me, look, it's over, forget about it. But they're crazy. You know, when you forget about it, that's when you're crazy. You know, if you if you think about it every day, and it, I don't know, as long as it stays with me, I'm gonna I'm gonna be sane. You've been listening to the soundtrack from Buffalo Creek Revisited, and before that, the Buffalo Creek Flood and Act of Man. Both films are available from Apple Shop. The 50th anniversary of the disaster is February 26. This is Mimi Pickering. Thank you for listening to Making Connections News and WMMT. And I ain't going soon. No, I ain't going back soon. I was born in a cold camp, stars at my head, mountains as far as I could see. Went to work every day, brought home a big pay. There was honey in the horn for me. In the coldest blow, like a dark summer snow. And I don't hear the roar of the temple anymore, or the whine of the trucks on the line. The town's all gone, it's gone. It's all gone.